Hello and welcome to The A-List, the podcast that asks the world's top advertising professionals how they got started in the business. I'm Tom Chrisman, Chief Creative Officer at DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City. And today I get to talk to Evelyn Neal, Executive Creative Director at TBWA Shiat Day in New York City. She got started at Wyden & Kennedy, spent over a decade there, uh, started the Amsterdam office, was partners with Charlotte Moore, worked with Susan Hoffman and Jim Riswald over there. So lots of stories about Dan Wyden in particular, which you can never uh, go wrong with Dan Wyden stories uh, on an advertising podcast. But we also talk about, you know, reaching out of your comfort zone, the idea that, you know, you're never you're never quite done in, in your career and you're always sort of changing and that's okay. And then she talks about getting out of the business and starting a sea school down in Florida, the Sanibel Island Sea School, which uh, you should all go go visit. It's the top thing to do on Sanibel Island in Florida on TripAdvisor.com. So check it out. You're going to love this uh, conversation with Evelyn. She's a really smart, very thoughtful person. It's going to be a great conversation. But first... The A-List is brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. Advertising Age called Ad House New York's newest, smallest, and arguably hippest ad school. Their philosophy, an ad class is only as relevant as a professional who teaches it. Ad House classes are taught by the best in the biz in the agencies where they work. You get 10 weeks of classes for just 600 bucks. To apply, go to adhousenyc.com. And for the latest news, follow Ad House NYC on Facebook. And now, my conversation with Evelyn Neal. Hello. Hey, Evelyn Neal. Hi. How, How are you? Doing, I'm all right. I'm great. We first met uh, just last year uh, or this year, maybe, um, when you uh, came and freelanced on uh, some stuff we were doing here at DeMassimo Goldstein before you uh, went off to work at uh, at, at TBWA Shia Day. Yeah. Uh, and I had heard that so much about true. you. Uh, Marta Ibarando uh, told me so much about you, so I'm I'm so excited to have you on on the podcast today. Thank you. We have wild and talented friends in common. That's right. Marta is in Mexico right now, uh, wowing some big wigs with a presentation of work. <laughs> She's um, born to wow big wigs. That's right. That's her job. Uh, so uh, we like to start here on the on the A list pod with uh, where you grew up. Where did where did Evelyn Neal? What was the young Evelyn Neal like? Where where was this? Young Evelyn Neal grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Wow. For yeah, from age two to eighteen. Wow, and what it a place was like growing up. up in a southern novel. I thought I would never, ever, ever leave. Really? That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought at the time. I had never been to Europe. I'd never taken a subway. I'd never been in a big city. What did I your What did your parents gonna... do? My mom was a teacher. And my dad was an engineer. Oh. My mom was a science teacher. My dad was an engineer. And they they were born so my in Alabama to... as well. No, they were from Georgia. And my father had gone to Alabama for a job. He he said. He said he hated it for 20 years. Every day he said he hated it, but he stayed. <laughs> and is he still there? So that's was, where we grew up. Was he, was he? No, he, he eventually retired back into the mountains of Georgia, but yeah, that's where I grew up. Wow. 
it was crazy, and it was a, a very odd time to be in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot was going on historically in yeah. that city, and uh, I was completely unaware. And when I confronted my mom about it later and said, hey, mom, uh, how come I didn't know anything about anything? Yeah. And she said the strangest thing, which I always remember because I think it's an instructive thing. She said, it was like being in the eye of the hurricane, that local news wasn't covering anything, mm. and that you would see stuff on the evening news that was national news, and you, and you would think, no, no, if that were going on, I would know about it. So she didn't and, even know uh, what was going of course, on. Yeah, she didn't even know what was going on, which I find very instructive in current times. It's but yeah. I'm not going to go political on you. But yeah, no, she did not uh, know it was going on. Everything's political now, Evelyn. Uh, <laughs> and and did you know? Did you know about advertising when you were when you were a little girl? No, no, I was not. I did not. I'm not one of those people who grew up wanting to be in advertising at all. I uh, I went to school and studied. To college, I got a degree in theater and French, and I was pumping gas in the Florida Keys and acting at night when uh, a friend of mine who was acting with had a radio station. She said, well, why don't you come sell radio? Because it'd be better than pumping gas. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I don't know anything about selling radio. And she said, well, you can act so you can fake it. So I started selling radio, but I hated sales. So the only way I could sell radio, really honestly hated it. The only way I could do it was to write the spots and then to go into a store and perform them. And then people were either so horrified or captivated that they would buy the ad. And wow. then I would, that's the way I sold. So content uh, ad, marketing, which, you, you were doing content marketing without even knowing <laughs> it. I was doing performance art. Spec, so spec ads. Why. You were doing spec ads. <laughs> I was doing speculative. I was shilling. I was yeah. giving them the old razzle dazzle. Yeah. But yeah. uh but you wanted to be you wanted to be in theater. That was your that was your first love. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Is Although that what got I you out of Birmingham? Is that is just, that how you got out of there? I just tumbled. No. Um what got me out of Birmingham was a desire to go to college at the hardest, furthest place away I could go. So I ended up in Rhode Island. Uh and then the summer of my freshman year I ended up working in Paris, which wow. I had never even been abroad or, you know, I just wanted to, I couldn't stand to be in the same place anymore. And I wanted to go as far away as possible and do as much as possible. Yeah. So here we are in advertising. So you ended up in advertising through that, through doing those, those well, radio things. Well, I was selling radio. Yeah. I was selling radio and then I moved with a surfer to California, tried to get a different job. But the only thing I could get again was selling radio. Yeah. And uh, so I felt like I was rolling down a giant funnel, like one of those big penny funnels where mm -hmm. the penny is just going right down the tubes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to end up selling radio for life. <laughs> and uh, I had this great boss. He owned radio stations all up and down the West Coast. Uh, and he said, I, so finally I said, look, I got I to gotta get out of here. I got to reframe. I'm going to go back home. And, and really figure out what I'm doing in life. And he said, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I can tell you I've never seen anyone sell radio like this. And he said, I think you should go into advertising. And I was like, advertising? 
who the heck goes into advertising? Right. And that was a smart piece of advice. So that's how I ended up in the biz. What, what did you do from that, though? How did you know what to do then? Like when you said you Well, then I started fumbling around like most. Well, this was you couldn't study advertising at the time, except Portfolio Center did exist. Uh, so did the School of Visual Arts. And so I started trying to get a job, and people were like, you've got to be kidding me. you just got a couple of radio ads in your books. So uh, I went to Portfolio Center, got a book together, went to <laughs> – so Charlotte Moore was my partner for years at Whitening Kennedy and yeah. before. But what happened was Charlotte was ever so slightly ahead of me. She'd gone to Portfolio Center, I think, like the year before I did. Mm-hmm. And so she um, – she taught at Portfolio Center as an alum, mm-hmm. and so she wanted. She conned me into going to Ogilvy and Mather Atlanta as her partner because Charlotte was great. Charlotte is great. Yeah. And um, so I got to Ogilvy and Mather, and I remember I'm sitting at my first desk, my first job, my real job with my little red Ogilvy pencil and my yeah. red Ogilvy pad, and yeah. um, and my own phone. And Charlotte comes into the office and she closes the door behind her. This is my first day. And she goes, we got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and I go, what? <laughs> I go, what? What? This is my first day. And she said, well, why do you think I got you here? I got you here to get me out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was horrified. And um, so we worked speculatively all night uh, on our books. And then yeah. all day we worked at Ogilvy. And then we went, um, we got a job at a completely unknown agency six months later uh, called White and Kennedy, and that's that. And that was in Portland? Yeah. And what made you, what were you working on at Ogilvy? So this was your first job in advertising. You were a woman in advertising. Yes. Uh, What was it like at, uh, at, in advertising at that time in Georgia? Oh, you know, it's it it was not the beginning of advertising for women is just like honey, you know. Yeah. Isn't there something you're supposed to be doing? Um we they called us the girls. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's it's a cliche all these stories. They called us the girls. In fact, what we did not know is that we got hired at Widen and Kennedy because Nike had given Dan Wyden of ultimatum to hire a girls team within something like six weeks or something, or they would fire them. And they said, quote, girls team. A, a, yeah. Well, a it was, it had, that was it. A girl team. But, but this was because, um, I won't say who, but someone at Wine and Kennedy who was a guy yeah. had done this women's spot that by the way, everyone bought off on and yeah. they ran on television and the last line of the spot was, and while you're at it, you might want to stop eating like a fat pig. Oh, so, my. So you can only imagine that that did not go over very well with the women of America. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and so everyone found out that uh, there needed to be some girls in the house. Yeah. Uh, so that's how we got our job. But we didn't know that. We were just like, yay, we're brilliant. We've been hired. Yeah. Um, uh, no, that's inc- then, an incredible story. And what, what did you have to do to get that job? Was there, was there fierce competition? Were there other, were there other girl teams that well, you had to, you had to so, physically fight somewhere? No, no, no. I mean, no, we didn't really, I mean, there weren't that many 
girl teams, but we, but you have to understand that Widening Kennedy was really un, unknown kind of at that time. Right. So um, it was this cool little weird little agency in Oregon, and Nike wasn't that big either. Right. right? This so, is 19. Um, oh, this is, yes, this is 19, late 1980s. I know many of you are not even born, you listeners out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I was born. So, thank you, Tom. Um, thank you. I was almost an average. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so there weren't, you know, it was a little shop doing cool work in the middle of nowhere for an up and coming account. And that's kind of my whole life. So, why did Reebok you go? How did, how did you know about it? How did you. Um... Uh, they were in archives. They were doing right. cool work. They had done the Beatles Revolution spot. And everybody's right. like, holy cow. They had done Just Do It. Dan had written Just Do It. They had done um, the Honda Scooter stuff with Lou Reed and uh, Miles yeah. Davis and. You know, they had done cool stuff, really but cool stuff. they were not big. Um, yeah. So you went up to Portland. So, uh, what was it like yes. going to being at uh, – now, you describe it as a cult uh, in, yes, your, in your bio. Uh, what, I think everyone would tell you it's a cult. What, what is it about that cult? And you stayed there for a long time, and you went back. Yeah, I've been there multiple times, um, yeah. You opened yeah. offices in Amsterdam. Yeah. You, how did, how yeah. did you go from the girl team to, uh, yeah. to running the show? Like, what's the, what's the secret? Well, I think you, you win, you know, you, you win, you do good work by anybody's yardstick. It's not genderized or right. you're no longer, you're no longer a girl hire or diversity hire or this hire or that hire. You're just good. Yeah. And I think that's the shift that everybody has to make who finds themselves hired as a quota, which, you know, I was, um, and then, you know, then you win, then you're good. Then everything gets a whole lot easier. And because you've been in all those rooms where you've had to prove yourself and validate yourself, you're probably stronger yeah. than most people. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I love because, about, about you is that you uh, look at everything as an opportunity. And we worked on some things. It was a, it was a pitch, I believe. And it was, uh, um, it was hard, a really hard, uh, really hard stuff we were working on. And you, you yeah. came at it with the same, uh, energy yeah. and enthusiasm and uh, business sense and all those things that uh, you would come at anything. Where did you learn to do that? Well, I personally think we're all ridiculously lucky, right? Yeah. So, you know, we get paid, all of us, all of us, all of us get paid more than people who do fine, fine work teaching kids and social mm -hmm. workers and and so, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're pretty darn lucky every day of the week. So mm -hmm. we should bring our best. Besides which, uh, you know, one time Wyden said, I couldn't, Dan Wyden was an, is an amazing man mm -hmm. and he's an amazing mentor. And for the longest time, I, I had planned originally to get out of advertising as soon as I paid off my student loans. And so it was intensely frustrating to me that I liked it so much and that I, that I liked him so much. And I tended to want to blame him because I liked him so much. And one day I go into him and I said, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. 
I don't get why advertising. I mean, why you? Why why did you, who I admire so much, do advertising? I so it doesn't I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And um he started laughing at me. He looked up at me and he said, Don't you know it doesn't matter what you do, it matters how you do it. And uh it stuck with me a lot. I don't think it matters what we do. I think it matters how we do it. And yeah. eventually that leads to you know, it leads to doing good work. Yeah, that's so yeah. smart and so uh, deep. Um, and and so many people, I yeah. think, in this business, uh, especially young people, are torn by this, like, am I doing the right thing? This is sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it's like the evil um, corporation. I'm tricking yes. people into spending more money than they need to. Yeah. But it doesn't have to yeah. be like that, right? I mean, it's... it's no, I've... I've had the most amazing work of my life. I'm doing some work right now. I can't really talk about it, but it's probably some of the best work I've ever done in my whole life and the most meaningful. And so um, I, I, I don't know. I think that you have to make, you know, if you bring your whole self to work, you will find ways that that whole self is gratified. I can promise you that. Even when I've worked on things like, like I was working on a, a, a trading company that executed uh, uh, large institutional trades, you know, stock basically, yeah. but look for large, big blocks of yeah. stock trading. Yeah. And they were the executors. And so what that meant is when things are volatile, when things are just flying all around, they're making money hand over fist. So right. when things are very bad, they're making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And so they felt like they wanted to talk about how well they're doing, but it felt like it was inelegant to talk mm-hmm. about that during 2008. No mm-hmm. kidding. It was inelegant. Yeah. And so I was like, well, you know, what if we equate liquidity to fresh drinking water and you give people gallons of water for dollars? Um, and we can talk about that. Um, and we can go put in freshwater wells um, with charity water. We can do that. And so that's what we did. And it was easy for them yeah. to talk about liquidity. Yeah. It was great for me. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Wells for people. Yeah. And uh, and this company that was making money kind of on the backs of people's misfortune in some ways, although it's it's algorithmic. It's not right. their fault. They would have been doing that anyway. Um was able to do something good at the same time. So, and that's me. I'm a, I'm a very mission driven person. Some people are driven by beauty and art. Some people are driven by buzz and power and pizzazz and whatever you're driven by. If you bring your whole self to work, I promise you, you can get it done. I do believe that. I mean, it works that's for me, so I have to believe it. And when you say bring your whole self, what do you mean? How does one bring them whole shit. self? Give a shit. Like don't, don't hedge. Care. Mm. Care. What? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I told somebody working for me one time. They they didn't want to make conflict with a client, and so they they rolled over on something with the client that they really didn't want to roll over for, and mm. they came back and they're like, well, I didn't know what to do. And I thought it was the right thing to do. And it made the client happy. And I said, well, let's play this out a little. If you roll over and you're in a, and we're in a hierarchy. So I was above them. Mm-hmm. I was like, if you roll over, um, then I don't have a choice. I've rolled over too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. 
But if you hold the line and you're underneath me, I still have a choice. Mm. I can roll over for you, which mm-hmm. I know you wouldn't love, but maybe we would need to do that. Mm-hmm. I, or, or I can stand by you and we can all stand firm. Mm. But when you don't do what you think is right, I don't have any flexibility. Mm. And that's the beauty of hierarchy. Most people think hierarchy is a pain, but actually it's a very good thing if you use it right. Yeah. You know? I think people should follow. I think people really should try to do the right thing for, but the right thing isn't just what, what you want. You know, brands have a certain personality. That brand I was talking about was always going to make money. Yeah. I can't say, oh, you can't make money, right? Yeah. You know, they have their own kind of realm of behavior, mm-hmm. but, you, you know, you should try and do what you think is the absolute right thing, especially when you're young, mm. because you're, Whoever's above you has an, a certain amount of flexibility. Yeah, that's great. And not be afraid to sort of have a have yeah. an opinion. And maybe it's not yeah. a popular opinion, right? but you have a right? boss who can you can bring that to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't have to be a conflict. It can just be a a discussion about like, hey, I think yeah. it should be this way. And. What do you think? Um, yeah. That's really smart. When when you uh, were first working with Charlotte, um, how did you guys work together? What was the dynamic of a partnership? How did you learn to do that? I think so many people when they first get into this industry and maybe you see it among young people, it's really hard for them to sort of be partners with people. Mm, um, yeah. How do you be yeah. a good partner? And and how well, did you learn? What the, things did you learn yeah. along the way? I'm I'm sure you weren't perfect at first. No, not I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not perfect now. But <laughs> I don't think any of us are. I think it's you know it's a three legged race. You're running with another person, so uh, that's not easy. But um, one of the things that Wyden uh, made me acutely aware of is that we were both equally responsible for the outcome, and if one of us didn't really believe in that a hundred percent, you couldn't just sort of be polite and let the other person do what they wanted to do. Uh, or he would find you out, you know, and you would have to answer for yourself. Um, in other words, he made each one of us, even though we're working in partnership, absolutely a hundred percent responsible for the choices that we're making. And that forces you in a partnership to be honest. It's not easy. Everybody knows, especially when you're up against it and you don't have an idea and one of you's like, please, please let this be the idea. But in the back of your mind, you know it's not. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to sell it hard because you're tired or you're up against a deadline. And you're yeah. like, yeah, this is it. This is it, right? Somebody's got to have hold the line and say as as much as we all want it to be, it's not, it's not it yet. You know, right. That's the beauty of a partnership is, you know, somebody, you got to tell the truth all the time. Yeah. Relentlessly. Right. Relentlessly. Um, Um, and when you, when you do that, I think, uh, yeah, maybe feelings get bruised at times, but the bruising is equal all the way around. Uh, so you get used to, you get, you get, you desensitize yourself and you learn how to listen better and, and come out better. 
what did Charlotte bring to the table, and then what did you bring? Like, what were your strengths and weaknesses on on? Well, we're Charlotte and I. If 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 you've met her, she we are very similar. We're both. We used to joke that we were demographically the same person. We were the same age. We were from small southern cities. We're both like literature uh, junkies. We both are extraordinarily verbal in the same way. We're we're really really similar, and. In that way, you know, I, I don't think it was harder for both of us because both of us had a very similar skill set. Um, but it also meant that, you know, our ideas were always super thought through and strategic on both sides. And Charlotte later became a writer for a while, and then she went back to being an art director. So, you know, she's perfectly capable of doing everything all herself. Mm. Um, so in that and and I think a lot of uh, kids coming out of school right now are more ambidextrous than I was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're using the, the tools a lot more, the writers are. Mm-hmm. So I think what that means is the partnership isn't about roles. It's just this this beautiful sort of checks and balances, this yin-yang of you completing me that we together, um, we together kind of have the honesty of and the creativity of pushing an idea through. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the best kind of partnership. Mm. Um, but I also really love working with people who are as far from me as a human can be. Mm. Really nonverbal, really conceptual, really like crazy ideas. I love working with people like that because they change, they get me out of myself, you know, they yeah. change my head. And, uh, and why we weren't dedicated. So oh, you weren't dedicated partners so, to each other. No, no, we would. So Charlotte and I would work on one project. Susan Hoffman and I worked together for a long time on stuff. Michael Preve and I worked together on stuff a lot. A woman in Kate Fraganing. She was, and I don't even know if she's still in the biz. She's from the UK, and we did a bunch of Microsoft stuff together. So different, all kinds of different people there. We you switch off a lot, mm-hmm. which is nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. I quite like that. What do you do when you get it? Because you've you've worked on so many different things. You've worked on Nike. You've worked on Coca Cola. Yeah. You've worked on yeah. uh, Microsoft and Klein, Paramount Hotel, like so many different kinds of businesses, and and people get. Um, get pigeonholed, and you don't seem to have been pigeonholed. What's the secret to that? How do how do you stay, um, sort of, uh, I guess, ambitious? Well, I think or, I nearly, I came as close as a human can come to tanking your career <laughs> because I ran a B two B shop for a very long time, and uh, the reason I did that is because I felt like at the time. Uh, it was before, there's been a lot of disruption in the industry in the mm-hmm. last 10 years or so. But before that, it was starting to feel like it, I knew what was going to happen every day. Right. And that every day was turning into the next day. And I felt like that might go on until I was 70, of course. Stupid you, me. It, you, it change was a common. You I worked on all the briefs. So you felt like I need something new. Is that what it was? 
Well, I felt like the industry was really sort of the same, and it was. Yeah. Everybody was doing the same sort of stuff all the time. Media was the same. It worked the same way. And I felt like I knew what every day was going to be like. And so I took this B2B job because I didn't know anything about that. Doremus, right? And is... Yeah. And, hmm. um, and I nearly tanked my career because we do pigeonhole people. Right. And, and right. over time, everybody forgot that I had done, like, you know, right. except, yeah. oddly enough, People who I worked with forever at Widening Kennedy, we all know each other in a way that's like yeah. deep and profound. And so none of those people ever forgot. They yeah. were all like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know who she is. I know what she can do. So, you know, luckily, but what that did do for me is I do like B2B accounts. I do like weird, complex things about AI and blockchain. And, yeah. you know, I do like these kinds of things as well. So it it actually gave me more ability later, but it but in the short term, right there, after I left Aremus, I thought, well, that's it. I yeah. have sunk my career with a big torpedo. <laughs> you didn't, obviously. <laughs> I don't. You know, I didn't. I think you have to be astoundingly courageous in this business. Yeah. I do. And not not uh, put yourself in this hole of like I must work for um no. only the only the top places only the best. or only the if top. I make yeah, one no. wrong move. It's so uh and and you talked about it when you were uh, uh, uh young sort of being like, "Oh, I I I I'm I got to get out of this advertising thing." But like yeah. It changes because you change, right? You 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 yeah, grow, you well, get Well, in the business change. And, yeah, and the yeah, business I changes like, and that's what I do love about advertising is like every single assignment, even yeah. though it is sort of there is a, a a tendency for things to be like, you know, put into like, well, this is like that assignment, this is like, but everyone can be different if you look at it in the right way. That's exactly right. And and I think um you know, uh the you, Wyden said to me one time, he, you know, he, uh, the reason I refer to him frequently is because mm-hmm. I was six months into the business when I went to Wyden Kennedy. So I was yeah. a super junior. I was straight out of Miami at school. And um, Dan Wyden and David Kennedy were mine and Charlotte's creative directors, mm. just our direct supervisors, wow. our direct creative directors. How many people were there and, at the time? Uh, I was the 87th employee, but I think there were only like 40 of us there because, you know, it was like seven years old and there had been a lot of churn. So there was only, there weren't that many of us there. And so, um, the, and there, and they had creative directors, but which were Susan and Jim Rizzo, Susan Hoffman and Jim Rizzold, but we didn't work under them. We worked directly under Dan and David. And I think we were there were only like four people or so who directly worked under Dan and David as juniors and got kind of grown. Mm. So I was, I mean, I was bad and I was super junior and the, and I remember my first view, I didn't have anything to show except for ad mats, which were these formatted headlines that you wrote for Nike to run ads uh, for a sporting goods store or something, right? A ton of these headlines, right? Which, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible work. (laughs) Um, And I remember bringing this bucket of headlines that I had done into my first review and Wyden kindly telling me that um, 
that it wasn't the best work that I was going to do there, <laughs> which is a great, oh, that's a great, a great to review to give yeah. somebody who's, yeah, it's a good way to say it. Yeah. And he knew they had not given me any opportunities, but there weren't any, you know, this was had to be done. So, um, but later he told me, he said, now look, this is, I think when I was going to Amsterdam, he goes, now look, you have a satchel around your neck and it's full of the way, th- uh, full of your writing. He said, it's the way that you write. It's the way you write when you're comfortable, and it's the way that you write all the time. He said, try not to reach in that satchel. He goes, try not to do it. And, you know, it's been a great piece of advice. Meaning Um, try to, like, don't be comfortable. Try to go outside your comfort zone where you're always, you'll go there, and you'll go there when you have to, and you'll go there, you'll go there when the deadlines are tight, or you'll go there when people expect you will write that thing you write. You know, there are certain people right. that they write the way they write, the yeah. way they write, and they always write that way. But, but, but he, I remember him telling me that, and uh, he was trying to caution me against getting complacent. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it stuck. It was a great piece of advice. I could see somebody taking that so badly, though. Like, you know, don't write the way that you write. <laughs> you know what I no, mean? No, but he didn't like, mean that because by then I had already, you know, I I was I was beginning to have a style, and my style was paying off. Right, right. You know, you you know what he was trying to do was grow me to a broader place. Right, push so it. That, yeah, push it. And that was when you were heading out to to go to Amsterdam to start a new agency. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. Like, how did you get picked to do that? How did you uh, How did you get to do that? Um, well, he picked six people to send over there, and he 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 did. I mean, I think I, if I ever were trying to grow an agency, I think the way that he grew White and Kennedy was super smart, which was to to not hire new people, but take your heart and send mm. it out. Take the core, mm-hmm. take six people who sort of represent the range of your core mm-hmm. and send them out as like a seed to start this thing. And he repeatedly did that for mm. multiple markets. Um, so we went, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And I can remember, like, even at that point in time, Europe was super behind the States in certain things, way behind in filmmaking, mm-hmm. way, way, way behind, mm-hmm. um, way ahead in design, particularly typography. You know, Dutch poster heritage was just amazing. Yeah. Um, but But in terms of, like, filmmaking and special effects and all that, the mill was just starting, which, of course, everybody knows now. And, yeah state of the art, but then you, you, you know, there was, they were way behind what we were used to. Right. And so what did you Um, have to do? Did you have to import? (laughs) We did that. It was just absurd. The one thing I did, I, the one thing that really came out of Amsterdam that I thought was amazing for me is we screwed up so much. Oh my God. I think one time we actually ran white space in a magazine. I mean, (laughs) we, we screwed up five ways to sideways, and I, I can remember us, everybody getting so mad 
and yeah. yelling at each other and blaming each other. It's your fault. It's your fault. Right. You did this and I told you that. We would get we would get to the point where we exhausted ourselves yelling at each other because right. somebody screwed up. Yeah. And finally we got so tired that we're just like, okay, let's just <laughs> let's just stop blaming each other. Yeah. <laughs> let's just figure out what to do and how to fix it. Right. And it was great. It was really great to stop doing that. Yeah. Um, it's like stop stopping hitting good, yourself in the head with a hammer. And stop like, hitting each it feels, other. It feels so for good. For God's sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to stop. Yeah, man. It's like, it's like, I'll stop if you'll stop. Yeah. Put down your hammers. <laughs> Put down your hammers. <laughs> um, and yeah. what, what, what was the work that came out of Amsterdam? Was it different than the uh, than Portland? Uh, yeah, because I know yeah. it's it's totally. it's hard. It's it's impossible to have you know you know it at Shiat in New York and Shiat L A and Shiat and uh, TBWA in, in London. It they're all different because there's different people and there's you know there might be the same and the markets are different aesthetic, yeah. but there's different clients. There's different. Uh, what was different yeah. about? about it and were there things where you're just like, well, this is just going to be different here. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's totally different. So, uh, just to sort of paint you a picture. So, uh, in Portland at that point in time, we were doing so much television that literally I would unpack a bag and pack it and go to LA again, like (laughs) for, you know, I can't even say how many spots a year we were, we were all, doing them. They were, all of us were yeah. jammed maximum amount of television you could possibly produce. Um, and there weren't as many digital assets as there are now, obviously to share electronically. So you were, you were out producing stuff all the time mm. in Amsterdam. It was almost all print with episodic film. Um, and, and all of us were sloppy and rusty at print. Um, because we hadn't done it really right. in the state. So um, we all got reconnected with the beauty of print. And, you know, if you think of some of the great art directors who come out of Europe, you know, they grew up on gorgeous crafted print. Yeah. Right. And, um, and post that Dutch poster design aesthetic that I was talking about. So we got really reconnected with, craft i would say that craft not Mm. filmmaking craft per se um and we brought a lot of filmmaking craft with us like we you know we were demanding a higher quality than we were getting and they were and people were trying to figure out how to solve for that because nike was a great account to work on then um the other thing that's amazing is i'm a writer right Mm. but everything that i did in amsterdam was translated into six languages and and so and, by the way, we did not have Nike in the U.K. Simon Palmer did uh-huh. at that point in time. Wow. So everything that I did was translated. So I learned so much about what we now call, what you know, there's so many different words for it, but, but culturally translating things. Yeah. Transcreation, and, I think, is, is uh, one. Yeah, one but I would even like, so I would write things that had rhythm, like, because yeah. I tend to write rhythmically. And uh, I remember this was later working in APAC, and it was being translated into Japanese. Mm-hmm. And the writer had, I had a translation in the characters, and then I had a back translation for what it means. And then I got on the phone with him, and I said, 
read it aloud to me. And they're like, why do you want me to read it aloud? And I said, because my writing is purposely rhythmic and lyrical. It had a, it had a, I had written it so you could read it front to back or back to front. I was Mm. like, I want you to read it aloud to me. And so, you know, I could hear, I could hear whether it was, um, the, the right thing. I could hear if it had the same internal kind of poetry. And I don't think people put enough work into um, catching the heart of something and moving it over. Yeah. How do you do that? Oh, do you do you read your stuff out loud after you write it to yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I make other people do it, too. Yeah. Every time. I do. You don't read you? It all. You're right. Yeah. You? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I don't write that much anymore. I try not to. But yes, when oh, I man. do, I, right. I write, I write uh, stuff, and and yeah, I do, I do read it out loud. Uh, you catch a yeah. lot of stuff that way. You, uh, it, it sounds uh, yeah. wrong or it sounds right. Um, so I think that's good advice to people. Um, totally. What uh, you gave, you sort of left uh, advertising for a little while, right? You started your own uh, school I down started in Florida. People. Yes, I started a sea school to teach kids about the ocean. So what happens to you if you haven't already hit it is you get to your 40s and you're like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, I got right through that. I just, I, I just waited. I just kept, uh, just, I, I just kept uh, <laughs> telling myself it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, but you yeah, said, yeah, I got to that point and I was like, okay, are you doing anything good for the world? Um, and I, you know, because I'm, um, I've already confessed to being a mission junkie anyway. I like purpose and meaning. So uh, I talked to my husband. I was like, you know, I just feel like if I if I don't do something meaningful, I'm going to look back when I'm old and go, this is I really regret this. So mm-hmm. we started the C school um, for the most, as I just articulated, claptrap romantic reasons. <laughs> what was um, it? What's it called? And. <laughs> Claptrap. It's just kind of, kind of random. Oh no, no, no! I know what I know what claptrap means. Oh, the sea but school. What, what is oh, the sea school? Sanibel Sea School. Sanibel Sea School. It's on the island of Sanibel. Sanibel. It's the number okay. one thing to do on TripAdvisor with your family. Go Sanibel. to Sanibel Sea School with your family. There you go. Well, at it's a new so, it's a new sponsor um, for the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I wish maybe the other honorary way honorary sponsor. Honorary sponsor. Yes. Yeah, so. Um, I was like, yeah, we got to do something meaningful. But what was really great about doing the C school is, you know, nothing's widen asked me. He said one time, are you going to write a book about doing the C school? I was like, no, no. If I wrote a book about starting a nonprofit, no one would ever start one. Mm. And he's like, that's why you should do it. You should write the truth. And I'm like, no, no. You, you know, you start a nonprofit with the most Pollyanna reasons ever. Yeah. And it's just like any other business. Uh, in fact, it's less rational and more financially hamstrung than most yep. because it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned so much. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> so it's actually made me much better at advertising. Because you had to start a business. And, and now yeah. you have empathy yeah. for your client or the, the owner yeah. of, of whatever business you're working on. Um, and you think yeah. about everything like if it was your business, what would you do? Yeah, and the problems of uh, there are cyclical – like I see um, 
One thing that's consistent in both businesses at the same time, for instance, which is hysterical, (laughs) is that um, when you're in your 20s and you're learning how to manage someone else, uh, it's pretty problematic for millennials. Are those kids still in their 20s? I don't know where millennial drops off. But in in mid-20s, let's say, and you're, you're, you're learning how to be a manager, the, the generation who are in their 20s right now is having a very hard time learning how to be a manager because they're used to being sort of a, a, a puddle of puppies and friends. And it's very hard for them to figure out how to tell peers what to do and how to participate in man- leading them. Yeah. Um, and that is true in advertising, I have found. And that is also true at the C-School. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's good. I see patterns, you know, that that happen with the same types of people or same age group. It's hard. It's hard to learn how to manage people yeah. anyway. Yeah. And it's particularly hard, I think, for that generation. What did you, when did because, you, when did you be like, when did you realize that you were a good manager of people? Because I bet you are. I bet you're a great boss. Um, <laughs> uh, um, when did you figure that out? Well, when, I what, had what was, a great what's the, boss. what's the trick? <laughs> Well, I had a great boss, so yeah. I think having a great boss helped you be a great boss. And Dan, Dan Wyden was your was your yeah. ideal. Yeah, and I think as good as I might ever be, I suspect I will not be half as good as I thought he was. Hmm. So it's helpful to have like a mentor and a boss, but also, um, you know, I do I do think. All, don't, you know, I've never, because of the way we were structured at Wyden Kennedy, you could be creative director on one piece of business, mm. but you could be working under somebody else on another piece of business. Yeah. Uh, because cause we took it, we kind of broke it down into assignments. So I might well be creative directing Coca-Cola during the Olympics, but I would be working on some Nike thing underneath somebody else. On right. The side, right. And so what that meant was you never got on your high horse about being a boss. Yeah. You were always a peer. Yeah. You were always a peer and a boss at the same time. Mm. Um, plus, you know, Wyden himself is not on a high horse and doesn't even have a high horse. So he, he, it would be weird to go around being on a high horse. Yeah. So I think that helps is in general. I think peer leadership helps people. Yeah. Because um, if somebody was a jerk you know, you in that situation, then they would be found out by all the other uh, bosses and sort of yeah taken. To or they the, would just be a jerk behind the uh, right. The, we we the, all know jerk. Yeah, yeah. There's lots but, of jerks. But you would have the. <laughs> we all know jerks, but it would be like, oh yeah, that guy's the jerk. Right. But you would have the freedom to just yeah okay well now I'm being managed on this project by the jerk yeah. Um, so that just keeps it humble. Tina um, Fey in her book, you know. Bossy Pants talks about, um, she called it Bossy Pants because she, when she was a little girl, she used to think of being a boss in a way that you walked around and you said, I'm the boss. And you sort of stomped your feet. You said, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss. Yeah. And, and that was like yeah. her in her mind when she became the boss at, um, at Saturday Night Live, she at first, sort of like that was her first inclination to sort of do that, like, hey, the boss is here, you know. Uh, and then she got sort of slapped down and realized that, oh, my God, I'm just here to make these amazing people 
uh, better by getting things out of their way. Um, yeah. Sort of, uh, they call it uh, they I call it that. servant leadership now, uh, which is a, yeah. a new thing that I've been very into. Uh, but it sounds like Dan Wyden was practicing that ser- servant leadership, yeah, and that he was. he was just there to serve the people that were working for him. Yeah, and he was, uh, you know, normal, very normal in the way that he related. I remember one time we were riding in a cab and a bunch of us, he was in the back seat and we there were too many people. And I remember I was sitting in the front seat next to the driver and the driver was listening to the radio and something came on the radio about, it said, it was talking about people. People, research has said that people were happier when their boss gave them praise than when they were given a monetary raise. That was what yeah. it said. Yeah. So the radio goes through this thing and says that, and Dan's in the back of the cab, and all of a sudden he pipes up. He goes, hey, did I tell you all I love you? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it was just like, no, yeah. not recently. <laughs> and. <laughs> You know, he's like a normal guy trying to figure out how yeah. to run a business. Yeah, right. Um, you're uh, at you're at Shiat now. We're sort of getting up yeah. to our forty five minute uh, uh, yeah. moment when we like to uh, sort of start to think about uh, how to end this thing. But uh, and I don't want to keep you too long. But you're at you're at uh, TBWA Shiat Day in New York now, working uh, I guess for uh, Chris Beresford Hill, who we've had on the show. Um, and who with, I love. Yeah, he's he's a good guy. He's a very funny man. He is a good guy. Um, he's a what's funny it, man and a good guy. What's it like there? What uh, your uh, executive creative director on I think Accenture. Um, I am, and probably some other and stuff. And the Mayo Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, and the Recording wow. Academy. Um, yeah, I feel like I mean I'm afraid to jinx this. I'm knocking on wood right now. I don't mm-hmm. know if you can hear me, but um, I feel like we're kind of cooking with grease right now. It feels yeah. good. It feels like things are hopping here. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of good people there. He, uh, uh, Chris has a lot done, of good people. Has done the thing of hiring good people. That's good. Yeah, and he's he's. He's a good guy, and everyone's trying very hard, and there's still that kind of chaotic entrepreneurial spirit that happens when a place is booming and people are maxed out. And, you know, that's always good yeah. when people are running around like crazy. Yeah. And we, we are right now, and, and there's a lot of excitement in the air. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know what all the magic is to turning places around, to be co- coming into a place and really turning it around. Mm. But man, you can feel it when you feel it, right. and uh, yeah. you can see it. And I don't know what the secret sauce and the ingredients of that is, but I do think part of it is being excited and and having high standards, but at the same time, like creating this team atmosphere that's non-hierarchical. It's it's nice. Yeah. It's really nice. Just doing your best and, you know, having having hiring good people and then having you know, telling them do your best and uh let's have fun with it. You know, cuz it you're right. Yeah, we I are, mean, we I are lucky everybody... to be in this <laughs> to be doing this for a living so, uh, as opposed to uh, We are so lucky. The other things man, we, could be we are doing. so lucky. 
And it also, you know, as far as like my contribution here, I'm really, I'm clear. I'm so clear now. I mean, the good thing about being where I am in, at this point in my yeah. career is like, I know how to help. Yeah. And I know how to, I know how to lead and I know how to contribute to the whole. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there have been various times in my career when I was younger and I, I couldn't say I knew all that. Yeah. Um, so it, you do sort of put it together and put it together and put it in the right direction. It feels like we're, you know, this is a good place to be right now for yeah. that. But just it's like you were, you were never going to always be in Birmingham. You were never going to always be uh, selling radio. You were never going to always be yeah. uh, pumping gas in the Florida Keys. You know, it's you just got to know that like this is just right now. This is like, this is just this moment exactly. and life is long. I think that's what so many uh, younger people especially don't realize is that this is going to feel like such ancient history someday to you. And you are. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> you've got so many decades to uh, to figure this out well, and it's okay right. that you don't know yet. Yes, that is true. You can't tell people that, though. You did the same thing, right? I, I did. did the same thing. I did. I was tortured. I had a mullet but for a long time, you... so, you know, <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes. I hope uh, you post that somewhere. A picture of my mullet? Yeah, it exists. Of the mullet, yeah. yeah it exists. Um Thank you for coming uh, on the show and uh, and and you know, hanging out and talking to us about, about your career. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Is there anything you want to tell people? You worked on some great stuff. Where can they, where can they see all the work that you've done? Do you have like a, like a portfolio site? EvelynNeal.com, E-V-E-L-Y-N-N-E-I-L-L.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, keep, keep the flame alive, everybody. Keep having fun. Care. Yeah. Yeah. Do shit today that you like. Do Don't something. Do something you like, and uh, every op- every every assignment is an opportunity to do something good for the world. Um, yes, you know, even even uh, a Budweiser assignment or a or a big you know Chase yes. Bank assignment, you can you can turn it into something really beautiful, and they want you to. Well, <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is, if you are one of those people who's like, I got to do good for the world. It will come to you. I've got some work coming out in January for the Mayo Clinic, and I'm really excited about it. And I can't think of a better client in terms of mission. Yeah, so that's incredible. It'll come to you. Yeah, it'll well, come to you. Uh, thank you for right, spending the friend. time with us, and have a great day. Thanks and say for, hi to all the yeah. peeps over there. Uh, and we will. keep to, keep doing great stuff. Thanks, Evelyn. Thanks, Tom. Bye. So that was my chat with Evelyn Neal. She is just such a lovely person. And you can I think you can hear it uh, in the way she talks about things. Just so open and, and lovely and nice. And I remember hearing about her, that she was that way. And she really is. She really is the nicest person. So uh, if, if you write her at Shia, be nice. If she doesn't get back to you right away, just write her again. And don't worry about it. She's a great person to get to know. This has been The A-List, brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. I'm Tom Chrisman. Thanks for listening. Please uh, go to Apple, iTunes, and all those things and, and, and really put in a, a, a rating for us because it will help us 
get uh, to the top of the uh, the charts over there, subscribe to us too. So that that helps a lot on whatever uh, whatever you listen to us on. And if you want to be interviewed in an upcoming episode, write to adhousenyc.com. Lauren Slaff over there will be happy to get us your your note. The A-List is recorded at Gramercy Post in New York City. Our engineer was Matt Stillo. Our producer was Casey Veligerski. Thanks, guys. <laughs>